Welcome to the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry. And today we're visiting with futurist, philosopher, and activist, Rennie Davis. Hi, Rennie. Hello. Glad to be here. Good to have you here. We're going to have a very interesting conversation today. I'm sure. <laughs> Rennie Davis was the coordinator of the largest anti-war and civil rights coalition in American history. He planned to bring 500,000 people to protest the Vietnam War at the 1968 Chicago Democratic Convention. With parallels to today's Republican White House, Chicago's mayor denied permits and the right to peacefully assemble. Instead, police beat and tear gas demonstrators while the whole world was watching. More people watched the police riot on television than watched the first man landing on the moon. For his role in Chicago, he was indicted with seven others in what the New York Times described as the most significant political trial in American history. Now, the movie, The Trial of the Chicago Seven, uh, a DreamWorks movie, is being released October 16 of this year. Rennie also organized the largest civil disobedience arrest in American history and partnered with John Lennon to end the Vietnam War. When the Vice President of the United States called him the most dangerous man in America, all his friends celebrated what they called this Academy Award of Protest. Rennie later became a venture capitalist and lecturer on meditation and self-awareness. He is the founder of Foundation for a New Humanity, a technology development and venture capital company commercializing breakthrough technologies. Rennie has appeared on Larry King Live, Barbara Walters, CNN, Phil Donahue, VH1, and other network programs, and he consults and provides advice in business strategy for Fortune 500 companies. Rennie, it's, it's so great to have this opportunity to visit with you today. And I know that you have a handful of things uh, that you're working on and, and looking forward to sharing with our audience that are of a, a very timely nature. And um, so stay tuned for that, folks. But before we, we get to some of those things, Rennie, I wanna ask you, uh, going back to the 60s and what happened in Chicago, um, can you take us back there and, and kind of paint the picture of, of what that was and what it was like to be front and center at that point in our nation's history? Yeah, one of the things that strikes me is the parallels between 1968 and today. <clears throat> you know, um, it just seemed like there was just one calamity after another. Martin Luther King was assassinated. It shook us, that really shook us to our core. And then shortly after that, Bobby, uh, Robert Kennedy was, was assassinated. He was, the day he won the California primary, he was shot and killed. Um, so there were just uh, tumultuous events for coalition. We had 150 national organizations in coalition, something we urgently need today. And uh, I was a coordinator of that coalition when we went to Chicago. I fully believe we would bring 500,000 people to the Democratic Convention, uh, which at that time was responsible for the Vietnam War. And um, it, it, I mean, we knew Chicago was tough, but <clears throat> we just didn't quite imagine that the mayor of Chicago would 
basically suspend the First Amendment, the right to petition, I mean, just basic constitutional rights, which, but he did, he denied permits to our demonstration. And so obviously our numbers went way down, but you know, mostly young, extremely courageous, you know, people went to Chicago and, uh, you know, on the, we were in a, park you know camped out and had the curfew was 11 o'clock we picked this park because boy scouts had been granted permits to stay in the park overnight and um but at 11 o'clock you know police assembled and uh, soon tear gas was flying and and police came crashing in beating and clubbing as they went it wasn't just demonstrators they were clubbing they they clubbed the news anchors in major of major networks that everybody knew them, you know, and I mean, what their heads get bloodied. I mean, even people who were watching the event on their porch step outside Lincoln Park, you know, got clubbed and beaten and and uh, gassed. I mean, it was, you know, and and I mean, as I said uh, earlier, you said earlier, you know, this was an event that was watched on television by more people that watched the first moment that the first man landed on the moon. I mean, it's a staggering thing. It changed public opinion in the country. Gallup poll showed that a majority of the country, you know, supported the government in a war uh, before that event. But the same Gallup poll two weeks after that event basically concluded that a majority of the American people now supported our position, the anti-war movement, which was to leave Vietnam. It was a remarkable thing. You know, obviously there was a big debate afterwards about who caused the riots. There was literally a presidential commission that was formed with, you know, hundreds of investigators and it was called the Walker Report. It went right to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. And, uh, and it basically concluded that the Chicago event was a police riot. That was their terms. So they placed the responsibility squarely at the footstep of the mayor's office. It was actually the best thing ever written about me <laughs> I've ever had. So that was good. But, uh, you know, uh, Nixon was elected and, and John Mitchell of his Justice Department concluded that, the, you know, they wanted to basically, you know, coalesce with the law and order elements of the Republican Party. And so what better way than to basically round up the so-called leaders of the demonstration and indict them. What uh, many people, you know, don't realize that it was one of the worst attacks on our constitution in American legislative history. It, it basically said that if you cross the state line or you use interstate commerce with the intention and that's meant what you read or what you spoke or what you wrote. Okay, if you had the intention to incite a riot, and a riot was defined as an assembly of three or more people, mm. one of whom threatened or th to violate a law. So, I mean, you could have a misdemeanor, you could have three kids on the street corner with clenched fists a year after someone like me or Martin Luther King had spoken. And, and for that event, that where there's no time connection at all, uh, you know, the speaker could face five years in jail. In our case, there was also a conspiracy 
to basically incite a riot. So that added another five years to our sentence. So we faced 10 years in jail and a, and a trial that, uh, I mean, the New York Times on the opening day of the trial called it the most significant political trial in American history. Everybody knew what was coming and, and, and it certainly lived up to the billing uh, it, it essentially was a unique moment because what we did was put the government on trial and we did it with humor and we did it with, with serious presentations. I went on the witness stand for three days and uh, while the, my testimony is not mentioned in the movie the trial of the chicago seven it was really one of the most dramatic you know moments in the trial you know and it would be you know to me it would have been important to include it you know what what i was able to do was to basically hold up a little bomblet to the jury i mean it was a tiny little thing you know about the size of a tennis ball and I explained that if this went off in this courtroom, everyone here would die, but the room would be intact for another trial on the Vietnam War, because this is an anti-personnel weapon. It doesn't take out property. It, you know, what, what it would typically do is maybe hit a little ricochet, you know, a bomb that would hit your leg and ricochet up your leg, and then you would die slow bleeding to death. And literally a Vietnamese woman who lost her entire family from this particular weapon that I was holding in my hands, okay, was basically gave me this weapon to explain what the U.S. military was doing in Vietnam. So it was, uh, you know, it was very dramatic testimony and it made our point profoundly. I mean, the jury was just rapt attention. The judge was hysterical that I was actually being effective. And, and, and I got, you know, every time I would make a good point, the judge, the judge would find a way to cite me for contempt of court. I actually got two and a half years of contempt of court for being on the witness stand. And the, the, the prosecutor, the lead prosecutor, Tom Ferran, decided that he was gonna use this trial to run for governor. I mean, it was a, such a media event. And so when it came time for him to cross-examine me, this was his road to the governor's mansion. And and it, it's not like, you know, we were just sincere, that's all. We, we, we knew what we were talking about. I'd been to Vietnam, to North Vietnam twice. And I brought back American prisoners of war from North Vietnam to their families. And so I had a pretty good understanding of what was really going on in that country. And so the cross-examination was just me being myself and just saying the way it really is. I mean, it devastated, he, he decided not to run for governor as a result of that cross-examination. Oh, wow. So, so it was a very uh, momentous event, you know, both the, the event and, and the trial. Yeah. I would say that one of the things that uh, was so moving about the trial was the support that we had. I mean, the, the movie doesn't mention this at all, but every evening we would go out and speak. And, you know, I would typically speak to 
10,000 people every night during the trial. You know, a really small turnout might be 5,000. Often when the governor would call out the National Guard and I, I spoke in a stadium. And so, and we just had such a passionate following and support system. I mean, that was our jury, yeah. you know, especially young people. Yeah. At the end of the trial, the Chicago 7 called for a nationwide student strike and 90% of American colleges and universities shut down. That's incredible. So that give you an idea, a little feel for what that yeah. time was like. Well, let me ask, um, did you end up serving time? What was, what was the outcome of the trial? Well, at the end, uh, the jury was deadlocked. <laughs> Pretty much like the country, actually, you know. So they, uh, they went before the judge and said, sorry, judge, we're deadlocked. You know, we can't reach a decision. Well, the judge just w wouldn't have it. I mean, he said, no, there's no way. I mean, there's too much time, too much money's been spent. You've got to make a decision. These were people who had been sequestered from their families for five and a half months. And they literally thought they were just be in prison forever unless they made a decision. So, so they basically decided the only way out was to compromise. They found us guilty on the substantive charge that we crossed the state line to cite the riot. That's those three people I mentioned. Um, <laughs> but that on the conspiracy charge, we were found innocent. Yeah. So, um, so we went to jail. Um, you know, bond was high. I don't remember exactly what it was. I just remember, wow, that's a high bond, you know. It was so amazing to see the support. I mean, there were 25,000 people outside demanding our release within one hour of our being incarcerated. And we raised the bail money in three hours. Wow. And I realized walking around my tier that almost everybody there was in because they couldn't post a hundred dollar bond and they've been in jail for nine months, 10 months, you know, with no, you know, and so I said, well, why don't we just stay in jail and keep raising money? We'll just bail out the whole jail. <laughs> and when we, when we go, we'll bring them all out. You know? mm -hmm. So everybody, you know, we, we had a friendly guard who went around to all the defendants. We were in different tiers. <clears throat> everybody agreed. So we stayed in for two weeks. So we did have prison time of two weeks. <laughs> yeah. And then we brought the jail out when we came out. Wow. And uh, basically, I would say, uh, when it went to appeal, uh, uh, every uh, you know, every were we were exonerated on every issue. Yeah. And now the the Justice Department had the right to retrial us again, but they just realized that was the last thing on earth they wanted to do was to try try us again. So, so we basically served two weeks in prison. That was our sentence. Amazing. You know, you mentioned a few moments ago that uh, you had visited Vietnam and even uh, brought prisoners uh, back, prisoners of war. I'm curious, did you ever have an opportunity to uh, connect and visit with the late uh, Senator John McCain, who, of course, famously was a prisoner of war? Yeah, John McCain was a prisoner of war at that time that I was going, and he was chosen to basically be among the three people who would be released to me and brought back. And, uh, you know, one of the things that makes me admire his particular courage is that he refused to go. He would stay, he would stay in prison until all the prisoners were released. <laughs> really quite noble, you know, 
Yes. So <clears throat> although John could have come back with me, he didn't. And so there were three other uh, seamen who came back. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Well, I want to I want to ask you about working with John Lennon, also another uh, well-known John. Before getting to that, though, I'm I'm really curious, Rennie, uh, given what's going on in our <coughs> country and society right now, and many of the parallels that can be drawn. Uh, it strikes me as an observer that there are a whole lot of us who, frankly, do not have a very good grasp on history and it's very it's worrisome and of course that's going clear back to the uh the greek philosophers and more recently the the great framers like jefferson and uh franklin the great concern in a, in a democratic uh, system of governance is that you have too many folks with not enough understanding of history and of what's at stake so I want to ask you, Rennie, given what you saw and experienced in the, in the 60s, what is your take on what's happening in our country right now? <laughs> well, I know we only have an hour, so <laughs> we put on a muffler here a little bit. <laughs> um, I would say the biggest thing about, I mean, you don't have to be a psychic honestly, to know what's coming. But we're so steep in civilization and that civilization is the way we see ourselves in our world, that the idea that uh, we're in a time like the Ottoman Empire or the Roman Empire where a civilization itself unwinds, maybe slowly, but it's basically an end game for civilization itself. It's just, it's really hard to grasp, you know, or imagine. You know, I would invite your listeners to just think about what you do know. You know, you do know that the temperatures are warming up. And you do know that higher temperatures means more accelerated droughts. And what you might not quite understand is that there's vast regions of the world where you know, farmers and their families have farmed for a thousand years that just simply are coming to an end. That uh, you know, they, there is no, there's no option. You either die or basically move. And so we're, you know, as as startling as 2020 is, the biggest calamities are going to begin in 2022, and and this is going to include mass migrations of not not millions but hundreds of millions of people migrating across international borders which is going to challenge every established society and, and um, droughts also mean that aquifer depletion which is occurring at an alarming rate is going to accelerate and that is perhaps the number one event to keep your eye on aquifer depletion because as that occurs that's going to create the future of humanity and that basically is going to result in people who live in cities who never even think about growing their own food starting to realize you know what i i need to grow my own food because food distribution chains are going to begin to snap 
and and that will be the obvious thing you know to basically you know it doesn't take but two minutes to figure it out that if you're going to basically live on your own garden you need a community you really do you you know you're going to need your friends your family you know an intentional community of some kind so for everybody who is thinking about a movement to change the world you might want to really consider just the a common sense thing of what you can see with your own eyes if you just look up at the horizon. I mean, this is what's coming is basically intentional communities that want to live and thrive. Now, we happen to understand, it's not, you know, rocket science, that people who've lived in cities their whole life, you know, really don't have much understanding about soil regeneration, mycelium, carbon farming, permaculture, biodynamic farming. These are kind of alien concepts. And without it, you're going to be in hardship and struggle if you try to do an intentional community. So what we're doing is forming a, a project in Arizona that is pulling together all of the know-how, the best in the world, and creating training videos as well as you know, a showcase where people can come on site and see for themselves how it's done. You know, it's a beautiful task, but it's, there is something, there is much to learn, there really is. And so we're just gonna package all of that information of the best resources on the planet to make it available to any intentional community on earth. You know, my personal opinion is that these intentional communities, which are inevitable, are going to become a network. And this is a network that could lead into a new nation on earth. And that nation could become the future of humanity. Yeah. So that is our vision. It's a beautiful, absolutely beautiful vision. And uh, it's so in line with the work we're doing at the Why on Earth community through our network of ambassadors who are themselves uh, leading and or part of permaculture projects, biodynamic uh, soil regeneration work, etc. And the notion of a network of intentional communities worldwide reminds me of one of my favorite essays that was written by a futurist, another futurist named William Irwin Thompson in the 1970s called The Meta-Industrial Village. And what he, and I've mentioned it on a couple of other podcast episodes, it's really one of my favorites. And what he uh, envisioned in these times is a return to localized soil-based uh, food and fiber production uh, while simultaneously we increasingly network and communicate globally uh, through the technologies that are available to us and it's, it's a wonderful read and I think in, in many respects uh, we're now living in the time Rennie where uh, his version of this possible future may well be unfolding before our eyes. And uh, it's beautiful that you're helping to lead the way and to create resources for others uh, to learn from. I think one of the great tasks in front of us in these next two to three years is a massive retraining and education for humanity regarding these core life skills. And really it's about regeneration and stewardship of the biosphere and that done locally, it's called a garden or a permaculture food forest. And I'm, I'm curious, where can folks go to learn more and follow along and get access to those video resources and other resources that you guys are creating? 
Yeah, we're having <clears throat> we're having an event on November the 11th that I view as one of the significant events of our time because it's going to um, lay out in detail uh, uh, how we could unfold successfully. You know, rather than just go into the despair and gloom and doom and the end of the world and pull out our hair, you know, uh, all, all our team, we call it the new humanity team, you know, are just brimming with hope and positive outlook because they really see a pathway. Now, it's not to say there's not hard times and struggle and difficulties coming. There, there are, but there is a way to navigate this time with ease and grace. One of the concerns that I have personally about this election is that it gets challenged by the Republican White House at the end, no matter what the outcome is, and that the challenge, which will be legal and be massive and vicious, okay, is going to create a period of doubt in this country, but also in the world. And we're going to watch fear peak for all times in human history, right after the election. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping to be wrong, but I, we're preparing for it. You know, if you, if we don't understand the impact sometimes that fear can have on a global level. I mean, there was massive fear about Hitler in World War, before World War II, but led to World War II. Fear, fear basically can create global war. And so um, one of the really amazing discoveries, you know, I don't want to, uh, I, I know it's really difficult for uh, a, a species that has such an early stage of awareness <clears throat> to understand the profound nature of frequencies. I mean, lots of people are dabbling in it and have a subject, but We've been able to discover that there is one frequency in all of creation that is impervious to fear. You actually literally have to go outside of the galaxy and find a, a central sun, which is no little matter, and then record it perfectly, which we've done, and then bring it back into our planet, which would be the first time in human history that this has happened, and we've embedded it in a recording. Mm. And so there's a meditation that we're going to do with this Hope 1111 event. It's not the only thing. We're also really bringing thought leaders and, and people who have a sense of what's coming and how to really put this together. Yeah. But the, the Hope 1111 meditation is really a beautiful gift that is here. You know, what it does is it balances fear and protects the balance of life, no kidding. Yeah. Uh, we've got a band of this frequency circling the globe right now. It's about uh, 25 miles in width, and it just sits below the stratosphere. You know, you're very intuitive, extremely intuitive listeners can go there and see for themselves. I mean, it really is there. Mm -hmm. And it's basically helping the world just not completely go bonkers, you know, with this sphere thing. Mm -hmm. And so uh, if you want to learn more about this or get the meditation and just try it for yourself, you know, the link is hope1111.com. That's great. Yeah. So that's hope followed by the one 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 four times one 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 dot com, and yeah. we'll we'll put the link in the show notes as well. Okay. And, great. Thank you. You know, Rennie, I was I was really struck when I was looking at the uh, website 
It's beautiful, by the way. Um, the juxtaposition between fear and hope. And, uh, you know, I'm struck too that many of our spiritual traditions speak to those uh, two phenomena in, in very uh, strong terms. We know, for example, the, the, the adage that comes to us from, from Yoda, which is really sort of George Lucas's way of conveying some of the wisdom that Joseph Campbell assembled from around the world, where Yoda uh, says that uh, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hatred, hatred leads to suffering. And I'm also struck that in the New Testament uh, scriptures, uh, that it's purported that uh, the Master Jesus Christ, more than anything else, said, be not afraid. And it, it, it seems to me that among all of the personal practices and inner practices that we can be cultivating right now, it is cultivating a way of being that is not in fear. And where I go for, for something other than fear is the love, hope, gratitude uh, arena of, of emotion and uh, psycho-spiritual uh, manifestation, I guess, for lack of another set of words. And I'm curious for you, you you've encountered some situations that it would seem might cause some fear. Uh, and as you're, you're thinking in terms of the transition from revolution to evolution, which is also mentioned on your site, how do you personally uh, cope with fear and or how do you personally cultivate the hope and the alternatives to fear? Well, one of the things you can do is basically just listen to this particular meditation. It's not, it's not the words of the meditation, although they're beautiful. Uh, it's the frequency embedded in the recording. What people are discovering for themselves is that uh, the frequency erases the chemistry of fear in your physical body over time. That would include, you know, let's say you were abused as a three-year-old and just can't get your arms around it and it's really st stuck, you know. I mean, this is the frequency that will remove that of a child abuse memory yeah. over time. Um, fear... Is it a particular um, numeric frequency that can be described in terms of hertz or megahertz? Yeah, unfortunately, it's not on the hertz scale. It's a subtle energy frequency. It's the highest frequency that's possible in the physical universe. It's the lightest energy in existence, and it is a new discovery. So all of the, all of the traditions that you mentioned are beautiful, and they all got us here. And so this is not a criticism of any tradition, religion, or spiritual new age practice, you know. But I would say that we're in a new situation right now today. So let's say that the journey to evolve is a journey, uh, first stage is to wake up. So how are we as a species right now? I mean, realistically. And right now we are between five to 6% awake. Now after awake comes aware, conscious intelligence and supreme intelligence. So this is quite an eternal journey, but just, but, but a group of people fully waking up has never happened before in human history. And, and, and while the traditions and the practices that we've learned got us here, I mean, 
So thanks, thank ourselves for that and all the teachers and everything. And I do want to just plant one seed. And I don't mean to be upset anybody's apple cart in saying this, you know. We need information that's new to the world to go from 5% awake to 100% awake in one lifetime. Mm -hmm. And that's the task before us. Now, it turns out that that information is in the world. Now, it's not widely available. So that's partly what our mission is, is to make this, this information, make the know-how for how to do this available. And, and if you think that you figured it all out and you've got all the answers, then this is not for you. But if you are still a student and still wanting to learn, okay, then this is made in heaven for you. So we have, uh, you know, for example, 13 life principles that uh, when you read them, you could say, well, I know all of those. I mean, that, of course, yeah. But then you read a little care more carefully and you realize, oh my God, you know, this is completely brand new. I mean, let's just take one principle to give you an example. The principle of appreciation and gratitude. Everybody knows that's a really good idea. Not everybody does know, though, that when you can be in appreciation and gratitude continuously for three or four days, it activates a master hormone in your body that basically secretes dopamine, serotonin, endorphins, and all the feel-good chemistries. I mean, imagine if you had a way to turn off the two adrenal glands that sit on top of your two kidneys with your mind. And, I mean, you could turn it off with yourself and then step into dopamine and serotonin in an abundance that just completely transforms your own body chemistry. And I would submit at this point that there, no tradition or new age spiritual practice can tell you how to do that. But the information precisely and exactly for how to do that is here. And so, uh, yeah, I don't know what to say. Check it out. You can go to our website. It's FFH Foundation for Humanity, FFH.org. And that'll take you to the 13 Life Principle Training. There, there's a whole place where you can basically just work, work. It's kind of a system of cards. You shuffle cards, you pick a card for the day, you read a one page write up, and you take it into your day. That sounds simple enough, and it is, but it changes your awareness over time. Mm -hmm. Then there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of practices, virtually all of them new to the world. That supports you in this gigantic moment. Have you ever tried to change anything in yourself? I mean, really, it's just like it is something else to change anything in yourself. Beautiful. But you know, we work with people, and we see people are just changing right before our eyes. And mm -hmm. Really beautiful, can be done. Mm -hmm. And so, I just leave that for your listeners to ponder. Thank you for for sharing that, Renny. Let me uh, take a moment to remind our listeners, that this is the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry, and today we're visiting with futurist philosopher and activist, Rennie Davis. I want to give a special shout out to the several sponsors who are making today's episode and our podcast series in general uh, a possibility. And our sponsors include Earth Coast Productions, the Lidge Family Foundation, Alpine Botanicals, Purium, Earth Hero, Vera Herbals, 
Growing Spaces, Soil Works, Earth Water Press, 1% for the Planet, Dr. Bronner's, and Waylay Waters. And of course, I also want to thank all of our ambassadors and other uh, members of the Why on Earth community who have joined our monthly giving program. And uh, if you haven't yet joined and you'd like, you can join at any level. At certain levels, you'll get monthly shipments of the Waylay Waters uh, hemp aromatherapy infused soaking salts uh, sent uh, to, to your home uh, as a thank you gift, uh, courtesy of Waylay Waters. So uh, a huge shout out to all of our sponsors and to get more information, uh, go to whyonearth.org. Uh, all of this is uh, linked in the show notes as well. And Rennie, I, I, because I said I would, I want to make sure I ask you about collaborating with John Lennon, uh, who I, I know is a, a visionary and someone who has inspired millions. Um, what was that like working with John and, and what was it like to have the opportunity to get to know him, I would imagine, in a, in a more personal way than uh, most of us know him, which is as a, as a celebrity and public figure? Yeah, truly, it was like meeting an old friend, you know. I mean, John was at a point in his life where I, you know, I just finished the demonstration in Washington where I spoke to 100,000 people who are prepared to be arrested to sit literally in roads and bridges and close the government of the United States if it doesn't stop the war in Vietnam. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, this is an amazing group of people, you know. It actually, uh, many historians think that that event did lead to the White House deciding to enter into the Paris Peace Accords. It, it was a profound event that's not too well known in history. There's now a book out called May Day uh, 1971 that I would recommend. Actually, it's a good description of what happened. But anyway, I was sort of, you know, wondering what's next after doing that event. And it did seem like the anti-war movement was beginning to wind down. And uh, out comes John and Yoko in a television presentation. They're actually in a bed in their in a hotel room. And they're, you know, I, I listened with rapt attention like so many people did to John. It was very clear. He was saying, I, I'm in the anti-war movement, you know, I'm in the real one. I'm, I'm in that, <laughs> you know. So because of my role as the coordinator of that coalition, I soon found myself in, you know, his, his, uh, his, his apartment in lower Manhattan. And, you know, we became good friends. And we, uh, you know, I, I, mean, I, I approached it gently and tried to see where he was really at and everything. But, you know, at one point I just was bold and courageous and said, John, you know, why don't we just do a tour, you and me? Okay, you bring the musicians, I'll bring the speakers, we'll go to 42 cities, and we'll end up at the Republican Convention with a million people. He looked right at me and said, okay, let's do it. <laughs> so, so after I kind of gathered myself back together, you know, uh, we, we, under, we went forward with our tour. We actually did the first event. It was in Ann Arbor, Michigan. There were, it's a 25,000 seat venue. Seats stole out in 45 minutes. Uh, 
Stevie Wonder was our guest entertainer. I mean, it was really a beautiful event. But after that, uh, the, the 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 Nixon White Houses came down on John Lennon with all fours. It started deportation, you know, based on sort of marijuana charges in England. And uh, so, and John did not want to leave the United States. So, so that ended our thing. But one one day when I was uh, you know having a I don't know I mean we were just making our plans for our tour, and, and he looked at his watch and realized he was late for something or other. And I said, well, it's not a problem. You know, I'm just here for you. So you know, I'll I'll just see you in the morning. He said, well, listen, do you want to come? I said, well, yeah, sure. Well, yeah, fine. Okay. So he had a rented limousine and we jumped in the back of his limousine and drove off. There. I still didn't have any idea where we're going. Yeah. And we got to a, we got to a recording studio in mid Manhattan and I walked in the door and there was the Yoko, uh, you know, was it plastic Ono band? Uh, John Lennon's band at the time was seated. Yoko was there, and there were a few of the technicians from the recording studio standing on the wall. But other than that, that was it. Me and Yoko sitting in, you know, about twenty chairs, you know, <laughs> you know and watching. So John, yeah, you know, I still had no idea. I mean, I knew that it was. I guess it was going to be a recording, you know. And so as John played, you know, the song was the final overdub of Imagine. Wow. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so that just really kind of took my breath away. I mean, even when I listened to it while it was beautiful, I had no idea the the implications and where the song was going and so forth. But yeah. so I'm very privileged to know John and I would say he was a real deal and a cool guy. And I liked him and he liked me. Yeah. What a beautiful friendship. Well, I, Rennie, want to uh, be sure before we, uh, you know, conclude today's conversation to ask you about an extraordinary chapter in your life journey, uh, which was the time that you were in the Grand Canyon in the 1990s. And uh, I'll, just, I'll just ask that you, you just paint that picture for us. What was that time for you? What, was, what happened? Well, I was in the middle of a business sort of upheaval and uh, a friend of mine, a really dear friend who took small groups into the Grand Canyon called me up and said, hey, why don't you take five days off and come to the Grand Canyon with our tour? And his name was Todd. And as a Todd, for, I mean, are you kidding? There's no way I can come to the Grand Canyon. I mean, but... You know, he sort of planted a seed with me and I thought about it and I said, well, I could go to the Grand Canyon for five days. I could do that. <clears throat> Why not do that? So I worked it up and, you know, made some time and decided and I went. Oh, we got to the rim of the canyon. I walked in and it was a seven hour walk because Todd had a super beautiful relationship with the Havasupai Indians. We were able to camp on the Native American side of the canyon. It was actually a property that was the furthest property before the end of the tribe and, you know, into, into nature. It was just a really beautiful place. And uh, I saw I, my friend Todd, you know, donated a tent and I had a tent. 
And at five days, um, I realized there was no way I could leave the canyon. It, it, you know, you, it's just a really special place. And so I wound up living in the bottom of Grand Canyon for four years. And it was probably the single best decision I've ever made. You know, it changed everything for my life. You know, what it started off really just, um, you know, I'd be out, out, way out from my tent and the weather would change. And, you know, it, it could be pretty challenging, really. You know, I didn't have a, you know, an iPhone or any, any way to link to the weather. So, so I began, you know, I was really getting a sense that it's possible to, I, I figured out that the earth is actually a living self-aware being. And, you know, science has really now come up grudgingly and slowly to realize that the Earth is a living organism, but self-aware, like you can talk to the Earth the way you and I are talking right now. You know, that's a little bit of a challenge to science. However, there have been shamans and, you know, medicine men and intuitive people, you know, all through the ages who claim they can do this. Uh, so I began to get weather reports from the earth about the canyon and they were good and they were reliable and I could trust them and it really helped, you know? So then one day I was sitting in my tent and I thought, you know, if I can get a weather report from the canyon, why not get a weather report from about the whole globe? And uh, that's really what has affected my outlook. I would say anybody who's trying to change the world today might want to take into consideration the earth herself. You know, the earth is basically got some plans too. Now, there are scientists who know what this plan is, and they're the ones who study earth cores, and they can see that uh, here's a here, according to the core, is a period of warming up, like maybe not as strong as today, but warming up like today. And then every single time what follows is a cooling down. Okay, and it comes suddenly and out of nowhere. Now the scientists who said the core don't quite understand the speed. The scientists still have this view that an ice age comes in slowly, you know, but it's not the way it works according to the earth. You know, so I mean, no disrespect to anybody. I'm not trying to upset anybody. Uh, I, you know, I'll plant this seed with love in my heart. If it fits for you, fine. If it doesn't, just set it. This is Rennie science fiction. That's fine. <laughs> but but uh, my authority is the earth. And uh, you, there are earth whispers in the world that you can consult as well. Uh, I, I train Earth Whispers, so I know they exist, and they all have the same opinion, you know, which is basically the heat will basically draw the waters of the ocean into the sky, and as the uh, one day it'll just start to rain, and the rain will quickly turn to snow, and the snow will basically continue nonstop without let up for 40 feet. So this is not some way distant thing. It, the timing is up to the earth, but the earth has made her decision not to die, but to regenerate. 
So whatever your plans are, okay, you might want to take into consideration the opinion of the future weather from the earth. It turns out that there is a livable area. It's roughly, you know, they think of Southern Arizona to the equator and equidistance on the other side. So that's where we're setting up our showcase for a new way of living on earth. And that's where we plan to build the, the plant the seeds for the future of the human race. We have remarkable technologies that, you know, are coming from inventors that are just brilliant genius people that have never seen the light of day. And, you know, we, they all have our working prototypes and we know how to bring their working prototypes into commercial designs. So we're going to create a technology, you know, I'm talking about free energy and recycling all waste and dirt and everything. And we can make brick pavers or blocks that are twice as strong as cement. We can replace cement with the waste of the world with our technologies. Uh, we have a heater that basically has an input of about 150 watts, which we can generate with a little tiny solar panel and a battery, and it puts out the electricity of a 15-watt electric heater. Now, that's not possible according to the second law of thermodynamics, but we'll have a major university sign off on it. Yep, these are the numbers, and it's it's going to create a big stir. It really is. I mean... It's not a joke, it's really here, we have it, and we're gonna do it. And so it's not like we're into technologies, we just see that the future of humanity is gonna be built in this area. And that's where we're putting our love and our trust and our focus. Yeah. That's really- and All uh, thanks to the Grand Canyon. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary, Rennie. And I know that uh, when we're sharing, um, you know, visions and intimations and things we might hear from uh, the earth or other forces. It's not necessarily something that's easy to talk about or that necessarily lands well for everybody listening. Um, but I, I would just encourage folks to maybe take a few minutes and, and just let what you're saying kind of sink in a little bit and consider it at least as a possibility. And uh, I so appreciate that you're sharing so openly and publicly something that, uh, you know, it could very easily be um, ridiculed or blown off by people. And I, I know one thing for sure. I go to a lot of conferences and visit with a lot of scientists and experts about um, the near future. And the, the one thing I'm convinced about is that Virtually none of us, and there might be some exceptions, but virtually none of us know exactly what's going to happen in the future, which I think therefore means uh, in, in a gesture of intellectual honesty, we ought to at least consider all kinds of different views and possibilities. And it's clear to me, Rennie, that one of the things we've lost in many of our cultural lifeways is an ability to listen and to connect with the living biosphere of this planet, of planet Earth, of Gaia. And that whatever we might think about anything else, technology, climate, ice ages, 
heating up, whatever solar cycles, whatever it might be, that it might behoove us at the individual level to do what we can to deepen the relationship that we can cultivate directly with our living planet. And that in that humility, we might discover wisdom and knowledge that will indeed be helpful for us, for our communities and for future generations. And uh, so I just, you know, I'll riff a little in response to you sharing something so, so beautiful and, and extraordinary, really. And uh, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you, Aaron. And I really agree with that. Uh, humility goes a long ways with everything I'm saying. I, I would just say, you know, I've planted a seed with your listeners. And um, you don't have to respond one way or the other, truthfully. You can just wait and see. But um, as you wait and see, the day will come when you will remember this conversation. Uh, I'm basically explaining a common sense thing, and it's based on the authority of the earth. So it's, a, it's an interesting perspective, a useful perspective, when a person is ready to hear. And um, you, when you feel ready to hear, you're certainly welcome to join us in creating the future of the human race. Mm, beautiful, Randy. Well, I'm, I'm, I've got just one more question I want to ask you that um, I think is, is a, an important one for many of us working in the arena of sustainability and regeneration technology and techniques. And of course, that means interfacing with the finance community uh, in, in many different respects, in many different um, ways. And I'm just struck, you know, as I'm reading through your bio and your background and having the opportunity to get to know you a bit more and understand the very heart-centered way in which you are doing the work that you're doing. Uh, it's interesting to see you're also a venture capitalist, right? And, and sort of the joke out there is VC stands for vulture capitalists. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not necessarily a demographic that is beloved by, to everybody. Um, and I'm, I'm struck, and I want to ask you, what, what's different about how you're approaching your work and role in the realm of finance and business uh, versus what, you know, sort of is the mainstream norm? Uh, and why is that different, uh, given where you're coming from personally and in terms of your spiritual understanding. Could you speak to that for a bit? Sure. You know, I would, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I uh, have several lives, I guess, like we all do. And after the 60s, I went into business and we formed a, just kind of a miniature booze app. Alan, you know, a full service management consulting company. And our clients were all, um, CEOs and senior management of Fortune 500 companies. I was the financial planner for many of these people. I was the financial planner for the president of the Manville Corporation, the board of directors of Gates Rubber Company, the president of HBO, people who were in the four riches. I don't know that that's a positive or not. I mean, I, I learned a lot, you know, by that, and I today I would say uh, the reason I'm uh, interested in assembling the capital 
because of our projects, especially our technologies. I mean, we have several, we have 15 world-changing technologies, every bit as significant <clears throat> as the light bulb. <clears throat> this changes the basic life and basic understanding of everybody on earth if it can be commercialized. And for that, you know, some kind of capital is needed. So there was certainly a period of time where I tried to just tuck it in and write careful private placement offerings that complied with SEC and did, you know, all those kinds of things. But I've moved on. I, I can still do that, but I have moved on to an understanding that actually there are quite a few individual people in the world who feel like I do about the world that's coming. And they want to support a vision where humanity not only survives, but lives and grows and thrives. Yes. And so uh, rather than just get all hurry, hurry and been out of shape and I'm a venture capitalist. I don't really do that at all. I, <clears throat> I, <clears throat> I just sit in my chair in my office and get quiet and just have the intention that things always work out for me and that I have the power of non-resistant thought in me. And by changing my own perception about it all, not going into all the things that can go wrong and worry and doubt and you know oh my god how are we going to do this <clears throat> i just chose not to do that so we have a commitment for our funding uh, we are going to raise some you know small monies until that money comes in which will be 60 days but we're just um we're all pretty relaxed but really you know i say we're venture capitalists we're relaxed capitalists you know we're you know and i don't know even about capital you know i <clears throat> One of the things that I've been shown is to basically create a digital economy for a new nation on earth. And so, you know, in our offering memorandum, which is 80 pages and security compliant, and it's, you know, quite a read, you know, there's a long section on, on uh, digital currency being created and how that would be created and how it would work. And basically, you know, as our, <clears throat> our large, our accepted currency comes into doubt. There's a place for all of us to go where we have a way to trade and we have a way to basically exchange. Um, so we're, we're on that one too. We really are. Yeah. I don't know. I'm a venture capitalist and no other I've ever met on earth. So I don't know what to say. You know. That's but, I'm, I'm a venture capitalist of the future. Let's put it that way. I love that. That's really great. Well, that, that mention of currency reminds me of one of my favorite books called The Future of Money by uh, an old late friend of mine, Bernard Lyotard, whom you may know. And uh, in it, he describes a potential future scenario where we're using digital currency that is tied to some of the sustainability fundamentals like soil and so on. Right. And exactly. for folks who are yeah. working on these kinds of developments, I find that book to be uh, a must, a must read it. There's so much uh, information and, and yeah. historic understanding of what money is and how it can work and what we might be able to do uh, as we innovate in that arena. Yep. Agree. Great. Well, Randy, it is such a joy to visit with you today and I appreciate you taking the time to, to share 
some of your story and perspective with our audience, of course, hope1111.com. There's a big event on November 11th. So uh, everyone, uh, please tune into that if you're called. And uh, before we sign off, Rennie, is there anything else you'd like to say or uh, share with our audience? Yeah, that um, there's only one law in this reality. <coughs> Excuse me. And that is the law of free will and the right to exist. So um, when you think that you know, there's no option or hope, <clears throat> and that the world is just on fire, which it kind of is. Uh, how, how do you basically navigate this time? You know, and there really is a know-how that many of us are learning to basically, uh, I mean, in the 13 principles, the first principle we have is everything is going to be better than anything that you could possibly imagine. And that's a great principle to live by. Because it turns out that when you really do, <clears throat> and you don't question everything, and you don't worry and stress, you can actually create joy and love and life in your own life. And that's really how you do live, grow, and thrive, is, is you profoundly changing ourselves, regenerating ourselves, just like the earth is regenerating herself, is, is really a, a cool path to go on in this time like no other. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Rennie. I appreciate it and look forward to the event on the 11th. Okay. Thanks so much, Aaron. Bye-bye. Bye. The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code YONEARTH, all one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. And... Thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.